Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Arash Azizada, a co-founder of the group Afghans for a Better Tomorrow, who talks about a large coalition that have come together to demand the Biden administration ensure the safety of the most vulnerable in Afghanistan. David Schultz, Distinguished University Professor of Political Science at Hamline University, who explains why he believes Republican governors should be held criminally responsible for their deadly COVID-19 malpractice. And Leah Wang, a research analyst with the Prison Policy Initiative, who discusses the urgent need to improve basic standards for imprisoned pregnant women and their infants. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Two years after India's Hindu nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi took control of the Kashmir region and imposed direct rule, the disputed area is largely calm. But the political repression of Kashmir's politicians and civil society activists has taken its toll, with all forms of protest and dissent largely banned. Urdu has been the official language of Kashmir over the past 131 years. However, in September 2020, the Modi government introduced Hindi, Dogri, English, and Kashmiri as four additional official languages. Moreover, administrators from New Delhi opened up land ownership to non-Kashmiris and encouraged Hindus to settle in the area. Foreign Policy magazine reports the Modi government set up a commission in March 2020 to redraw electoral district lines in Jammu and Kashmir with data from the 2011 census. The goal of Modi and his Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party is to weaken traditional Muslim influence in India-administered Kashmir and give special status to Hindu castes and refugees who fled Pakistan. In one of Rio de Janeiro's poorest favela neighborhoods, gunfire broke out on May 6th as police helicopters hovered above the area. Hours later, 28 people were dead, nearly all black men. Some of those killed were unarmed. This was the deadliest police raid in Rio's history. White Rio residents living in expensive high-rise apartments have almost no experience with police abuse and blame poverty and corruption for the violence that plagues their city. Increasingly, black Brazilians argue that the police are trigger-happy and their violence in minority neighborhoods is often racially motivated. Two years ago, Brazilian cops killed nearly 6,400 people, about twice as many as police killed in the U.S., which has a population 19 times larger than Brazil. The Economist reports that 8 out of 10 Brazilians killed by police are people of color. Today, blacks make up 56% of Brazil's population, but account for 70% of the nation's population living in poverty. Officials have declared a dire water shortage at Lake Mead, the nation's largest reservoir, triggering major cuts in water diverted to Arizona and other western states. With its unprecedented declaration, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation 
acknowledged that after a 20-year drought, the reservoir that impounds the Colorado River at the Hoover Dam has receded to its lowest level since it was created in the 1930s. The lake's water level is projected to fall even lower by the end of the year, prompting further cutbacks in January 2022. Arizona will be hardest hit, losing nearly a fifth of the water it receives from the Colorado River. Farmers who have already had to make some land fallow will probably have to continue to do so in the coming years. A similar water level drop in Lake Powell threatens to disrupt the 5 billion kilowatt hours of electricity generated annually at the Glen Canyon Dam that's distributed across the American West. The past 16 years have been the driest period the Colorado Basin has seen in 1,200 years. Although the West has endured periods of extended drought, Scientists say the current conditions have been exacerbated by the climate crisis, which is fueling longer and more severe dry spells. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After the Taliban effectively took control of war-ravaged Afghanistan on August 15th, the world witnessed chaos at Kabul's international airport, with thousands of Americans, foreign nationals, and Afghans desperately trying to exit the country. But after much criticism was leveled at the Biden administration for its handling of the crisis, as of August 25th, the U.S. has successfully evacuated almost 59,000 people. With the looming deadline of August 31st to complete the evacuation, CIA Director William Burns held a secret meeting with a Taliban co-founder and political leader, Abdul Ghani Baradar, on August 23rd. The Taliban have warned that they would reject any request for an extension of the withdrawal date and express concern over the departure of massive numbers of skilled professionals from the country. President Biden has most recently said, that he would honor the August 31st deadline to complete the evacuation. Many Afghans fear a return to the harsh version of Islamic law that the Taliban imposed during their rule from 1996 to 2001, in particular the repression of women and girls, minority groups, and suppression of free speech. Your reporter spoke with Arash Azizada, a co-founder of the group Afghans for a Better Tomorrow, who talks about a large coalition that have come together to demand the Biden administration ensure the safety of the most vulnerable in Afghanistan. Uh, well, we have teamed up uh, with a variety of progressive organizations. We are ourselves a progressive and, and left-leaning coalition of, of organizers. And we have teamed up with uh, anybody that's been willing and stand in solidarity with us to ask the Biden administration to demand from them. There's four specific things you can do in this very moment. A, it remains the evacuation of folks who are extremely vulnerable. These are folks who have worked with the U.S. military in some capacity. These are folks who have worked with U.S. aid agencies in some capacity, even the U.N. and, and foreign governments from Western Europe, such as the European Union. Uh, those folks are at risk, obviously, and I think that's kind of clear. You know, these are allies of the United States. They're just folks who have invested in, in Afghan society, who have been prominent in the civil society. But there's also women activists, you know. There's also Hazara and, and, our, and our Shia community who are being targeted, whose doors 
are basically being marked. They're being tracked down. And so the situation is deteriorating by, by the hour. And so then the remains are top focus. Our secondary ask is that the world, but specifically that the U.S., open its door to Afghan refugees and to kind of mirror what it has done in the past. It has opened its door to refugees from places where we have been involved in in some capacity or have interfered or have invaded, quite frankly, you know, whether that's Cuba or our involvement, uh, American involvement in, in Vietnam, you know, there's a specific evacuation of Kurds that, that dates back to 1996. Our third and fourth demands are to kind of drop the uh, legal uh, red tape that currently exists. You know, like there's a current immigration system in the United States which has been in the news for quite a few years. It exists to reject people. It discourages folks from even trying to apply. And so we are asking the uh, Congress as well as the Biden administration to kind of drop all these rules and, 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 and weird stipulations that exist. You know, we're trying to get folks, Afghans who are vulnerable and at risk and are risk, uh, like worried about dying in this very moment, to allow them to be entered to the U.S. on a humanitarian parole. And so then our last demand kind of brings us also to this precarious situation that Afghanistan and the Afghan people find themselves in, which is not only is it dealing with this oppressive force that's now taking control of the country, you know, aided and abetted essentially by the United States and its NATO allies. And now it's dealing with oppressive rule as well as a drought, as well as uh, the banks that are uh, have no uh, U.S. dollars. Uh, people don't have jobs. Uh, the folks who had a government job last week don't have one today or are not getting paid or are unclear about what their status is. And so the Afghan people just find themselves in a desperate situation, and I'm, I'm afraid it's only going to get worse. So we're asking for an emer emergency humanitarian aid package so that Afghan people can have access to basic needs and services. Arash, the United States media by and large ignored Afghanistan for many of those 20 years of the U.S. occupation, but now we're seeing a succession of politicians and military officers on cable TV news and in newspapers decrying what's going on now with the U.S. withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. And there's a lot of hand-wringing about losing the war in Afghanistan, humiliation of the United States, as well as a real loss is being perceived for the U.S. empire across the globe. How do you respond to what you're seeing in terms of commentary on, on our media these days? I've not had time to watch cable news, fortunately, uh, but I still see that certain uh, op-eds are making the rounds, and I still see that certain policymakers who are responsible for the failure in the first place are still being elevated when the media has also part or partially been complicit. They could have spent 20 years shining light on how the Ar Afghan army was dysfunctional. They could have shed more light at, at, and, and let the American taxpayers say that, hey, what, whatever is happening many, many, many thousands of miles away is not helpful. You know, we're entrenching uh, corruption and like uh, things such as like ghost soldiers. You know, they keep signing this number of 300,000 Afghan soldiers. Well, they exist on paper, but they don't exist in reality. And when the army kind of dissolved quite, rather quickly over the past few weeks, we saw why they didn't fight. Nobody really wants to fight for a cause that's not worth fighting for, right? It has to be a worthy institution with worthy leadership, competence, uh, that is representative of the people. That, that's not something that was in place in the U.S is responsible for it, right? Like the European Union, the world community is responsible for enabling those folks. And I think there's a, this should be a moment of reckoning for folks in the media as well. Like this is your time to elevate Afghan voices. This is your time to say, hey, 
also like we know we're late you know we should have done this a long time ago and it's but at the same time like we can hold accountable to somebody like ryan crocker who in the i think in the new york times in an op-ed writes you know this was an affordable status quo we should have just kept on going with this occupation for a long time and they they, they look at places like uh japan or, or korea or, or germany as this those are places that are uh, uh, mirror like what what the situation is in Afghanistan. Ambassador Ryan Crocker is advocating a status quo that was killing 10,000 people a year. I mean, that is just such a cheap disregard for human life and Afghan human life. And it's painful. It's disheartening. It's infuriating. It's angering to write the ambassador, to read the ambassador's words in such a prestigious uh, publication. Now, I think it's also for a time and folks in American society say, these people got it wrong for 20 years. Let's listen to some new voices. Let's listen to some people who, who were warning about it. You know, two, three years ago, we rang the alarm bells and say, hey, the Trump administration is having direct talks with the Taliban. We don't think this is okay. And quite frankly, no one really paid attention. It was not a hot topic uh, situation. There, nobody was falling off airplanes and cargo planes. But now that we're here, let's, let's have an honest discussion about this. Let's elevate folks that were insightful and, and could speak to, for example, the society that they were building. The U.S. spent 20 years telling women and activists and young folks, hey, break barriers, start this business, be daring, speak your mind. This is exactly all those things that is putting them under the threat and oppressive rule of the Taliban. Now those, these people are frightened and scared. That was Arash Azizada, a co-founder of the group Afghans for a Better Tomorrow. Learn more about the effort to protect the Afghan people as the Taliban consolidate their control over this war-ravaged nation by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. President Trump, according to a number of news reports and studies by major universities, deliberately ignored guidance from public health experts and failed to take the basic steps necessary to protect the American public from the onslaught of the coronavirus in early 2020. By some estimates, Trump's delay in issuing federal public health mandates and guidelines caused the needless deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. Now, amid the spread of the highly contagious and more dangerous COVID-19 Delta variant, several Republican governors, following Trump's example, have rejected public health science recommendations to require masks be worn by public school students as schools reopen this fall. Not only have Governors Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas failed to impose mask mandates in state schools, but they've declared through executive order that mask mandates are illegal and have threatened to fire school officials and withhold funds from school districts that enforce common-sense measures to save students' and teachers' lives. Your reporter spoke with David Schultz. Distinguished University Professor of Political Science and Legal Studies at Hamline University. Here he talks about his recent article titled, Governors Should Be Held Criminally Responsible for Ignoring COVID-19 and Issues Related to Republican Politicians Nationwide, Defying Public Health Guidelines for Perceived Political Gain. Let me start by pointing out and saying that we've got pretty good science regarding um, how the pandemic is being spread. And we have pretty good information regarding things that can be done to mitigate the spread, you know, mask wearing, um, social distancing, vaccinations and so forth. And that's sort of the frame for the piece that I have here is that we are letting 
elected officials off the criminal hook. Now, we think that what Donald Trump or DeSantis or Abbott are just making political decisions where at the end of the day, the voters get to decide whether um, they support their choices or not. And the point that I was making is that we shouldn't be letting them off the hook if we applied the same standards of criminal liability to, let's say here, governors that we would apply to the rest of us in our private life, we could probably charge several of these governors uh, with second-degree manslaughter or other forms of unintentional or maybe even um, intentional uh, intentional murder or manslaughter. So that's the basic argument that that we too often lit elected officials, and I'm even going to say, if I wanted to push it further, we lit CEOs of corporations similarly off the hook um, and don't hold them criminally and personally responsible for their actions. And that's the frame for the article that I wrote in Counterpunch a couple of weeks ago. In your recent article, Professor Schultz, you talk about Florida law, a particular provision of Florida law, that could be the jumping off point for accountability for Ron DeSantis and possibly other governors who are defying public health guidance and, and likely costing people's lives. You're exactly correct. So let me just, again, set up a little bit of law here. Most of us understand that if I intentionally uh, do something to hurt somebody, such as kill them, I could be held criminally responsible. So I pick up a gun um, because I want to shoot and kill somebody. We all understand that you know, if I make an intentional decision to do it. But our law also has a whole framework of other situations where I don't have to prove uh, premeditation in order to hold somebody criminally responsible if somebody dies. We've got a framework of law like gross negligence, negligence. Uh, for example, I can't get in a car drunk, drive, kill somebody, um, and then claim that I was too drunk to know what I was doing, and therefore I can't be prosecuted for murder. What the law says is that you were negligent in your behavior, that you knew or should have known that what you were doing was wrong. Uh, and we have other laws that hold people similarly criminally responsible if their actions or in some cases their omissions lead to the death of somebody else and by omissions negligence. So I key in in Florida on their second degree manslaughter law that basically says that in your actions, if you are grossly negligent, if you have failed to take an action that you should have taken that results in the life of somebody dying, you can be prosecuted and convicted of second-degree manslaughter. In our private lives, if you and I basically run through a bunch of examples I put in my piece, if I leave my child in the back seat of a car during the day and dies, I can't say, oh, I forgot, I'm sorry. No, well, the law is going to prosecute you. Um, again, there's a whole bunch of other situations. For example, I can't play Russian roulette with a gun, put it to a friend's head, kill him and say, oh, we were just playing a game. None of this counts. So here, why do we let governors off the hook when their own departments of health or the CDC um, indicates to them what's causing the transmission, what could be done, what actions could be taken. And in this case, not only are they, let's say, negligent in not taking precautions, but they're now taking the next step, what? Actively preventing um, schools or local governments from taking actions to protect people's lives. My reading of Florida law would suggest that what um, DeSantis is doing right now would qualify as second-degree manslaughter um, under Florida law. That was David Schultz, 
Distinguished University Professor of Political Science and Legal Studies at Hamline University. Find a link to his recent article titled, Governors Should Be Held Criminally Responsible for Ignoring COVID-19, and related analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Most Americans rarely think about people in prison unless they have a direct family connection, and even less about the women who are incarcerated, even though that population has been growing rapidly in recent years. According to the Sentencing Project, between 1980 and 2019, the number of incarcerated women increased in the U.S. by more than 700 percent, rising from a total of just over 26,000 in 1980 to more than 222,000 in 2019. A subset of women in prison are individuals who are pregnant and or deliver their babies while incarcerated. The Prison Policy Initiative has compiled findings from the Pregnancy in Prison Statistics Project led by Dr. Carolyn Suffren of Johns Hopkins Medicine. They've published several recent papers about the prevalence of pregnancy in prisons, jails, and youth facilities as well as breastfeeding policies and opioid use disorder policies. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Leah Wang, a research analyst with the Prison Policy Initiative, which works to expose the harms of mass incarceration to those inside as well as outside prison walls. Here she talks about the harms pregnant people face in jails and prisons and what can be done to reduce the risks to both mothers and their infants' health and well-being. Extrapolating to the wider population, again, we know that women are entering jail and prison more and more over the past several years. These populations are exploding. So if we have about 3 or 4% of people inside who are pregnant, that figure has actually stayed this, roughly the same since maybe the 1990s or early 2000s. But because we know that the number of women in prisons and jails has exploded, Imagine how many more pregnant people we're talking about each and every year. The researchers estimated about 58,000 admissions of pregnant women into jails and prisons, um, and then thousands and thousands giving birth or having other sort of pregnancy outcomes while still incarcerated. So these are people we need to pay attention to because these are where the policies and practices come into play, and we can figure out whether or not these women are being treated um, with quality medical care. The researchers were tracking outcomes like live births, full-term or preterm births, miscarriage, C-sections. That's something that has historically never been looked at. And because only so many pregnancies concluded inside during the study period, we have somewhat of a small sample size. But in some states, the miscarriage rates, the C-section rates, uh, the preterm birth rates were higher than the national rates among our, our general population. So that's something to pay attention to. Uh, one other thing is about breastfeeding and lactation. So breastfeeding is generally impossible when someone is incarcerated, given the physical separation between mother and child. So researchers asked about policies related to breastfeeding and pumping 
and only about one third of the surveyed sites had anything written down about whether or not mothers would be able to breastfeed or to lactate in general. In many cases, lactation was allowed simply for maintenance purposes, meaning that the, the breast milk was eventually discarded. It would not reach um, a child for its intended benefits. And so there's some troubling data related to the number of postpartum women and the number of lactating women. And when those are different, it brings up questions about the way that uh, policies and practices are seen in these facilities where if a woman is suddenly not allowed to lactate, that is generally a painful process and can lead to further medical issues. Does that mean there are any cases where incarcerated women are able to keep their babies with them? There are very few instances of uh, nursery programs where babies are allowed to stay on site for maybe six months or maybe a year. That's a very rare case. And another sort of option is to have breast milk somehow safely transported to the child outside. And I'm not aware of, of a county or a state that allows that, but at least that would allow for the breast milk to reach its intended child. And I'm not aware of any instance of that. I would love to know. But nursery programs or otherwise sort of diversion programs that allow mothers to, to be with their child during that critical period if they choose to breastfeed are popping up in, in local spots, are being piloted in certain jurisdictions. But otherwise, it's, it's certainly the exception, not the rule. Leah Wang, does the Prison Policy Initiative have any recommendations for how to improve these outcomes? So prisons and jails and youth facilities are not famous for their high quality medical care. When we talk about health care in, in custody, we always have to say that there's really no set of standards that facilities are held to with regards to medical care. So the most basic way of sort of hopping onto that bandwagon is to review standards and guidelines that have been published that are recommended but not required for these facilities to adopt. So there is a National Commission on Correctional Health Care. They have a set of standards for health services, which includes a whole variety of policies related to pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recently published an updated version of their guidelines for, again, reproductive health care in carceral settings, jails, and prisons. Those are some of the basic ways to just review and implement policies so that they can hold staff accountable so that people who are incarcerated can know what to expect if they are suddenly incarcerated and experiencing one of those circumstances. Beyond that, they should be making their policies public. It's really hard for the researchers and for the public to understand what policies and practices are there if they're not accessible. And then finally, just chipping away at the number of pregnant people and postpartum people inside by creating programs and incentives for keeping mothers and babies and families generally together instead of separating them with incarceration. That was Leah Wang, a research analyst with the Prison Policy Initiative. Learn more about groups advocating to improve conditions in prison for mothers-to-be and their infants by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Production. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on Global Community Radio in Geneva, New York, KOZW in Knoxville, Tennessee, Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.